Welcome to Scandal Water, where the tea is hot and the conversation lively. Your hosts, Candy and Ashley, will discuss a peculiar story somehow related to the entertainment industry. This podcast might not change the world, but it just might satisfy your thirst for an intriguing tale. Oh, it's that time of day. Tune in and hear what the ladies say. It's time to bend your ear when the silver screen appears. Stories about the stage and screen and everything in between. So come on and join the fun. The curtain opens in three, two, one. All right, guys, we are super excited today to let you know that we have an interview with Mr. Doug Perry. You guys know him. You remember he was featured heavily in our two episode focus on the true crime behind the musical Chicago. And so as we teased last season, he is here with us today to talk about the follow-up book. So welcome to Doug. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here on your show. Well, we wanted to, to start simply by asking a little bit about your background. Could you tell us a bit about how you got into writing and what your background is? I've enjoyed writing for as long as I can remember, you know, mm. since I was a little kid. I'd uh, come home from school, fourth grade, fifth grade, and go straight in my room and write stories. My mom told me once she figured out that she needed to just let me have my alone time right after school. <laughs> And after about an hour or so, I'd come out and be ready to talk to her, tell her about my day, have a snack, you know. Yeah. So I've always liked to write, but I never, I never formally studied it in school beyond basic uh, English classes. I, I, I majored in uh, history and political science. So I, I never took a creative writing class, never taken a journalism class, though I've been a journalist for 30 years. Oh, wow. I, I learned writing by doing and yeah. by reading, yeah. better or worse. I'm really um, identifying with you right now because that's, that's fairly well my experience, too. I just do it. I do by experience, not by, you know, having done it before. Was it your interest in history that led you to the project of the Girls of Murder City? Or what did lead to that? Yeah, absolutely. I was living in Chicago in the 90s. And I've always uh, loved history as well. And, uh, you know, Chicago has such a wonderful history. And the way I got to know the city uh, when I moved there right after college uh, is on the weekends. I just jumped on the L and I would get off every, you know, at a different L stop every time and just walk around the neighborhoods. And, uh, you know, just the the buildings and just everything. It's just amazing, you know, what history is just right there in front of you. And then I try to find out about it. But actually, with Girls in Murder City, it kind of started for me during a visit to New York. Uh, I saw the musical Chicago shortly wow. after the revival opened on Broadway. Uh, and I noticed in the playbill just a one-sentence mention that the original play that the musical was based on, you know, was based on Maureen Watkins's the playwright's experiences as a Chicago crime reporter in the mm. 1920s. Considering that I was a journalist in Chicago at the time and uh, the salacious, violent subject matter of the musical, <laughs> I wanted to find out more about the real story. I started, went to bookstores, went to the library, and I was surprised that uh, there just wasn't much more out there. Not much had been written about 
Maureen Watkins yeah. uh, or the murders that inspired the play. So I decided to find out myself. So I to do my own research and I realized there's a book here. Yeah. Have you gotten to read Maureen Watkins' original play? Did you find it to read it? Yes. Oh, yeah. It's available. Oh, where can we find it? Because I was interested in reading that, too. Go on to Amazon. Oh, really? Okay. Well, that would yeah, be it was it was republished in, in the late 90s. It is amazing how little was written about it over the years. You know, I had to rely on documents that I had to dig out. Mm-hmm. You know, that that no one had looked at in decades and that, you know, hadn't been digitized and probably never will be digitized because mm-hmm. there's no real point. Uh, and it's costly. You know, at, at one point, I convinced a staffer at the Cook County uh, Clerk's Office to let me go through stacks of mostly unorganized hundred year old divorce records. Oh, my gosh. And somehow I stumbled upon the files for Belva Gartner. You know, one of the murderesses of Cook County Jail. Uh-huh. And it was glorious. Such a wonderful <laughs> find. They did legal documents differently back then. These divorce records, they told her story and the story of her marriage in plain language about the subject's backgrounds and attitudes about their extramarital affairs and the private eyes they'd hired and the arguments they'd had. It was just an incredible find. And the same went for police trial records. These records included complete verbatim interrogation interviews uh, and court testimony and again this stuff was just packed away in storage rooms boxes undisturbed for decades what a fun yeah so I, i started to feel like i had personally interviewed some of the men and women in the book well that's one of the reasons why we loved your book so much which i'm sure you could tell but it not only did we find out so much more about true crime aspects as you've just said but maureen was such was such an unknown to us i want to pay you a a compliment because one of the things i loved about that book and the next book that we're going to talk about is how you just told it like it was just like what you were saying about those those records you read you just laid it all out there and said here's what these people were like the truth truth about what they were like and however you feel about them is up to you but I'm going to give you the facts and I just loved that method of writing I loved it oh thank you very much absolutely that's what the historian is supposed to do yeah yeah but you do it so so well thank you that means a lot to me to hear well okay let's move on to your next book which is what followed up Murder City which was Elliot Ness the rise and fall of an American hero so why'd you choose that to be the follow-up to the girls of Murder City Oh, when you're researching any topic involving Chicago in the 1920s, uh, of course, you have to delve into prohibition and how it changed the city and changed how people thought about the rule of law and the world around them. You also have to dig into uh, Al Capone. And Mm -hmm. that inevitably brought me to Elliot Ness. Like with the real story of Cook County's uh, so-called Mary Murderesses, I wanted to know more about Ness. And again, I found very little. Mm. Uh, Almost everything out there that we knew about Ness ultimately came from one source, and that was Oscar Fraley's book, The Untouchables. Mm -hmm. And it was widely known 
that The Untouchables, the book, was highly fictionalized. I wanted to find out if Fraley's Ness was the real Ness. Mm-hmm. Back to dusty old documents in Chicago <laughs> and in Cleveland, where Ness later worked. And I discovered that in you know some fundamental ways, the Elliot Ness and Fraley's book was accurate. Mm-hmm. But in many more ways, it was wrong. You know, Fraley created, you know, a Superman. Elliot Ness, he was courageous and he was a decent man, but he was human with uh, the faults and frailties that all of us have. He, he definitely was a hero, but he was also a tragic figure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. To me, reading it, I'm not sure. I'm still trying to formulate what I feel about Elliot because I finished the book fairly recently, and it seems like Elliot lived in a very black and white reality for for him. Everything was black or white. It's either good or bad. But he himself was such a shades of gray character. He had so many good qualities and so many qualities that just were horrible. But that's that's humans, I guess. He just was a fully complex human being that did a lot of good and and I mean I don't want to say he did bad. He didn't do bad but he treated people badly his wives mostly (laughs) Uh, yeah he he struggled with insecurity throughout his life yeah and you know later alcoholism i think he loved each of his wives very much Mm -hmm. um but you know he was driven to have affairs and i think that again speaks to his insecurities and he was you know, as much as he loved his wives, he loved his job more. Mm-hmm. That's that's where he, he found his uh, validation. And right. he needed that. He needed that badly. And so he ultimately neglected his wives in, in favor of the job. Moving on to our next question here. In the beginning of your book, Elliot is described as something of an annoying do-gooder. At least in my opinion, he was. So, for example, here's an excerpt. He fit all the do-gooder stereotypes. He still lived at home. He took his meals there and called his mother every day to let her know if he'd be late. He wore the same two suits over and over. As a junior agent, he earned $2,500 per year, which was enough for him. That was the problem. He couldn't find a friend in the office. No one wanted anything to do with him. What do you think about Elliot's upbringing or personality caused him to fit this kind of do-gooder stereotype? And why do you think it was so off-putting to others, at least early in his career, when for Maureen, in your last book, her being good was actually very appealing to those who worked with her? Is it just different expectations for men versus women in that age or what do, what do you think about that kind of a big question there uh, yeah you know alexander jamie uh yeah was yeah, elliot's brother-in-law. brother-in-law he was 20 years older than uh-huh. elliot he was a very influential figure in elliot's life really a father figure Jamie was an FBI agent and later a prohibition agent. And Elliot wanted to be just like him. Uh, And Jamie was uh, a self-righteous do-gooder. He told young Elliot, woe unto them that call evil good and good evil. Yes. Elliot um, wanted to live up to Jamie's standard. He he wasn't always good, but he never called evil good. You know, he didn't rationalize and fool himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, he tended to think the worst of himself and wanted yeah. to be better. Now, the reason Elliot's Prohibition Bureau colleagues early on wanted nothing to do with him is that a large majority of agents, especially in the Chicago office, were on the take. That's right. Oh, that's they right. made they made paltry salaries while everyone around them during the Roaring Twenties seemed to be getting rich and living large. 
And the mob was willing to pay bribes and offer all sorts of other inducements. So Elliot's colleagues didn't want him around because they knew he was a straight arrow. And he wouldn't take bribes. So it's it's like Serpico decades, uh, you know, decades later. This kid would be a problem because he would uh, look askance at what they were doing. And who knows what he might do, who he might tell. That makes sense. As for why, you know, Maureen Watkins being good was appealing to her co-workers because she was a woman and a beautiful woman. Of course she was good. Uh, Of course she was better than grubby (laughs) men. You know, men idealized her. They wanted to be near her and be cleansed through that proximity. Such were the common attitudes of the era. Something that was kind of funny is I remember back when we were doing the Murder City episodes, Ashley and I joked about the part where Belva Gardner said she needed to carry a gun because she was so frightened of the gangsters and and the violence around her. And we kind of made light of it yeah and then reading this book i was, I was like, like oh my gosh she's right <laughs> she was absolutely right like the, the chicago that you described in this elliot ness book was terrifying and so i don't know that our listeners would depending on their knowledge of history if they would understand just how bad it was either so we thought we'd share just this one small excerpt that paints just a tiny picture of what it might have been like and then ask for some of more of your thoughts here's what it's said. Capone, the big fella, or number one to his men, Scarface Al to the press, sought to lock down his new standing and expand his domain in the only way he knew how, through terror. In 1926, 76 hoodlums were killed in Chicago as rival gangs fought it out over turf and hurt feelings. Many of these killings happened in public, in drive-by machine gun attacks. That meant civilians were falling too, including an assistant state's attorney, William McSwiggin. Anyone walking in the loop began to flinch or outright panic whenever they heard an automobile sliding around the corner at a decent clip. So what other insights would you add about just how frightening the scene was in Chicago at this time and and the task that Elliot faced in trying to get this under control? Yes, Chicago was... uh... The Wild West, um, and and you now had you know automatic weapons, machine guns, all these mobsters had, and yeah, there was just a huge amount of money to be made in bootlegging. Mm-hmm. And so there were a lot of people who stepped up during Prohibition to take advantage and to, uh, you know, you had one, you know, they, they became so wealthy. You had one mobster who, who had a solid gold toilet in his home. Wow. Yeah, was just, so with that kind of money uh, on offer, uh, a lot of people are willing to do uh, some pretty awful things. So a lot of it was, a lot of the violence was, you know, gangster on gangster, um, but it's been over and so yeah if you were walking in the downtown loop and you heard a car creaning around the corner it wasn't just someone trying to get through an intersection it, you know at least yeah. it might not be and you knew you better die for cover just in case yeah people were scared and they knew that the mob had bought much of the police force and many judges and so they knew there was no justice to be found on the one hand uh, prohibition was very unpopular and mm-hmm. so people romanticized Al Capone and mm-hmm. other gangsters. But it got to a point where people were scared enough that they wanted things to change. And, and that's where Elliot got his opportunity. Do you think that they were romanticizing Capone because of the war and just they felt like, 
life is short and he kind of presented himself as this Robin Hood character at first. Do you think they were buying that? Or what was the reason for romanticizing this man who is murdering people? Uh, World War One absolutely helps explain the changing values and mores in the yeah. 1920s. Then you add in prohibition, which which shows that if government passes laws that most people really don't like and feel are unjust, the rule of law loses legitimacy and civil mm -hmm. order breaks down. So someone like Al Capone in that circumstance uh, can become a hero. Uh, among many groups, alcohol had deep cultural and even religious meaning. You couldn't just wipe that away by passing a law. Right. Now, prohibitionists being fanatical couldn't see beyond the stereotypical wastrel drunkards. So they didn't foresee the wholesale rejection of prohibition by millions of Americans, high and low. The old sob applies, be careful what you wish for. You just um, might get it, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, I don't think anyone anticipated just how powerful the gangs would become mm. because of bootlegging and how much money there would be in bootlegging. And, and part of the hero worship is also just uh, Capone had a high profile and, you know, celebrity has uh, always been attractive. He was in the newspapers, you know, right. headlines on the front pages every day. Yeah, uh, just like the people, girls, Melba and Angela. Yeah. They were heroes. Right. People are impressed. Yeah. Well, okay. So we talked earlier about how nobody, well, I don't want to say nobody liked Elliot, but the do-gooder attitude kind of was off-putting to people. So then after he starts his work in Chicago as a prohibition agent, it, the tide kind of starts turning. You quote in the book, Francis Mulvanity, is that how you say his name? Mulvanity? Yep. Mm -hmm. Okay, you quoted Francis Mulvanity as saying, Ness worked hard, took every risk he asked his men to take. He was honest and likable. My father respected him. So do we think that Elliot's winning people over with his work ethic and willingness to risk his life? Or what do you think is changing opinion? How is he helping to change opinion about himself? You know, Elliot did not become a prohibition agent because he believed in prohibition. Right. He took the job because he wanted to get into law enforcement. And that's yeah. where his brother-in-law could get him hired. Right. Elliot uh, vigorously and honestly undertook his duties because he was ambitious, but also because he truly believed in law and order. He, he saw that the mob didn't stop with selling booze. He recognized that illegal booze led to murderous violence and that it financed other other world, underworld activities like uh, prostitution and that it corrupted every level of government. He believed deeply in good government. He was a committed goo-goo, as <laughs> government reformers were called in the yeah. first half of the 20th century. You know, leaders lead by example, mm -hmm. um, whether a good example or a bad one. You know, right. that stuff travels, uh, Elliot would say. You know, by the mid-1920s, as I, as I said, the Prohibition Bureau was so corrupt, so brazen and over the top about it that a backlash happened mm -hmm. and Elliot was a part of that first as a rookie agent working for George Golding who was brought in from New York to clean up the ranks and really truly take on the mob rather than just pretending to do so Right. Golding flamed out by being too trigger happy. Uh, his men, not Elliot, kept accidentally shooting innocent people. You can't uh, do that. <laughs> yeah. And, and Golding was rather flip about it. Hey, that's the yeah. price of doing business. You want to take on the mob? People are going to die. Yeah. Well, yeah. So. Turns out citizens frown on that. <laughs> yeah. 
So Goldie was sent packing after a relatively short time in Chicago. But the U.S. attorney, uh, George E.Q. Johnson, he recognized that the Chicago Bureau still needed a Capone squad. Mm -hmm. And Elliot, uh, he was only in his late 20s. Uh, He got the job almost by default. No one really wanted it. You know, it was kind of viewed as a death wish. You know, people were afraid of the mob, including the police. Um, So if you were going to really take on the mob, rather than just pretending to take on the mob. Bad things uh, were probably going to happen to you. Johnson saw something in Elliot, which is interesting because, again, he was, Elliot was in his late 20s. He hadn't really accomplished much. And a lot of people underestimated Elliot early in his career. Probably because of that baby face, right? Yeah, exactly. He was boyish looking. He had this sweet smile. You know, he was, you know, thin. He wasn't, you know, this big strapping guy. He looked harmless. Yeah. And it took people a long while, whether Johnson in Chicago or Neil McGill in Cleveland, who was a you know assistant Cuyahoga County prosecutor, to believe that Elliot really was going to do the things that he said he was going to do, which was take on police corruption, take on the mob. And it took these people even longer, of course, to realize uh, he had what it took to to pull it off. Mm-hmm. And he, he meant what he was saying. Mm-hmm. Okay, I have a really quick question. I don't even remember if we wrote it down here, but there was one part where you talked about when he would question people the the widow for example the first widow that he got to turn on the mob and he used that sincerity and i think i again i don't have it in front of me but i think you said it bordered on ridiculous like if he had just pushed a little bit harder it would have been ridiculous how sincere and earnest he was do you think that was really him or or had he just tapped into his own persona and he knew that by doing this he could get her to flip on the mob. What do you think about that? Oh, I, I think it was real. I think that's okay. who he was. Uh, at the same time, I mean, any interview, whether it's uh, a reporter or a federal investigator, it's a performance. You're, you you want a specific result. And so you are thinking about how to, to gain that result. But yes, he was, old women and dogs loved him, you know? I mean, that was just... <laughs> That's the, he was the kind of guy that, you know, a mother would want Mm -hmm. uh, their daughter to bring home. Kevin Costner played him in the movie, but, you know, Jimmy Stewart would have been a great, you know, choice earlier to to play him. He he had that kind of uh, persona in his, and then that was his natural persona. You mentioned Kevin Costner playing him in the movie. I'm going to confess that I was very uninformed. I actually had to find a movie that starred Robert Stack. I think it was The Return of the Untouchables because I'd never seen his TV series, which apparently ran from 1959 to 1963 called The Untouchables. And then of course, the 1987 film that you referenced that starred Kevin Costner was the same name. But this is how many Americans, I think, came up with their image of what Elliot Ness is like. So we've just said he he actually did have a lot of heroic qualities, a lot of very admirable qualities. So what do you think kind of separates the real Elliot Ness from this Hollywood version? You know, uh, Elliot would not have recognized himself either of those portrayals, Mm -hmm. maybe a little bit in Costner's. Mm-hmm. Not at all in stacks. Uh, as as we were just discussing, Elliot's secret sauce was that he didn't fit the part of the fearless, larger-than-life gangbuster. Mm-hmm. Right. He came across as an ordinary guy, amiable, harmless. 
There was a fun story in a Cleveland newspaper at the height of Elliot's fame in that city, capturing a scene from a trial with gangsters in attendance in the courtroom. When Elliot enters the room, you know, suddenly their swagger goes away and they're nervous and they're dirty nice following Elliot walk around the room. This young guy who looked like a government clerk at best. But at the same time, his deeds spoke. And I was kind of flipping through the book here in preparation for this. And, and, and one thing kind of jumped out at me here where he's in Cleveland as a new safety director, mid thirties. And, you know, you don't have TV. Uh, you don't have the internet, obviously. So it's not like he's world famous for his work, you know, uh, with the untouchables. And so, you know, he goes in and talks to the county prosecutor and the assistant prosecutor, McGill, who I mentioned about actually taking on police corruption that you can't beat the mob if you don't first get rid of police corruption that's right and and the prosecutor i mean this is and this is you know shocking to the prosecutor that this would even be considered you can't take on police corruption because everyone's involved in it including you know all the politicians And, and he's like befuddled that elliot is posing this and asking for their backing mm-hmm. and the prosecutor says well where do you start and so elliot says at the logical place we start at the source. Right. This thing called vice and corruption is a many-headed serpent. We're going to start by lopping off those heads one at a time and let the chips fall where they may. Both of you know as well as I do that crime cannot flourish in any city without protection, police protection. And I have reason to believe that the crooks and gangsters are getting plenty of it in Cleveland. So we start with the police. Right. So that that was uh, a quote that McGill was remembering a few years later and and talking about you know how shocked he was that this was actually going to happen that this young guy the new safety director of Cleveland was going to try to make this happen I think for me it was interesting because again I had to educate myself a little bit but when I was watching the two films that I just referenced my thought was they tried to make Elliot Ness appear perfect in every way. It was even stylized in the Robert Stack version. Like you'd have the music in the background and it was just so over the top. Like we're going to show this person as just, I, I feel like he was supposed to be the perfect father, the perfect, like he just seemed like he was just really, as you said, larger than life. Whereas the Elliot that I saw in your book was single-minded mm-hmm. and would show bravery and fearlessness and courage. And he showed character in the way that he would put his life on the line and he would be right in the thick of it with his men. So I saw so many admirable qualities, but I did not in any way see perfection. I saw humanism. Right. I, th- I think to me, that was a, a big difference, but I, this was just, you know, again, I'm speaking from a place where I'm not nearly as well informed, just kind of some impressions that I had. Yeah, absolutely. Again, uh, Elliot struggled with Mm -hmm. self-worth. Yes. Hard to to say why. I mean, some people are just built that way. Yeah. Um, And so to some extent, he was overcompensating to try to prove himself to himself really more than anyone else. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and it worked for many years uh, until it didn't. Mm-hmm. And, and but his his personal life certainly suffered he had he was you know such a likable guy everyone said so and charismatic but he had difficulty as so many people do particularly men expressing his feelings and you know so i think he had difficulty with intimacy so he was yeah i think he was lonely for much of his life and he he couldn't i think he struggled with depression of some sort and that's why he started to tr- 
drink to excess. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he was, he was a complicated, uh, you know, individual. One of the things I thought was interesting is how he was described as a giggler several times in the book. Mm-hmm. And that does not fit what you think of Elliot Ness being as somebody that liked to giggle or play practical jokes or any of that kind of stuff. That did not fit with your preconceived notion of him. Right. right. That's true. Yeah, it is. It is. Well, you t- you mentioned Cleveland, so let's let's move on to Cleveland and talk about what he did there because this is a part. I think I'm speaking for Candy too, where we were. I'm going to say I was more impressed with what he did in Cleveland than even the Al Capone section of the book. And I I, I I do I do think it was funny though in the Al Capone section. You said that first night when he was broke into one of those buildings that he'd been chasing the high ever since then. So that first night of I don't know axe grinding or whatever he'd been chasing that forever. But he moves on to Cleveland, he becomes the safety director, the public safety director, and his top three priorities were to first clean out corruption in the police department, then modernize the police department, then attack the mob. And he insists on hiring a group of secret investigators to help him with this work, seeing as the only way to find out who the corrupt policemen were, kind of like what he did with the untouchables. This time they're called the unknowns. So what do, what do I guess us as a collective here, all of us think that his work in Cleveland did to help solidify his standing as an American hero? What, what do you think contributed to it? And what do you guys think surprised you about it, about his work? Yeah, a lot of people don't realize Cleveland back in the 1920s, 30s, 40s was one of the biggest, most dynamic cities in the country mm-hmm. or before the industrial decline of the following decades that have cut its population in half. Um, I was really impressed by how important Cleveland was to America. Right. Yeah. The mob problem and the police corruption in Cleveland was arguably just as bad as it was in Chicago. Mm-hmm. So... First off, Elliot went in there to clean up the corrupt police force, as we talked about, mm-hmm. uh, using his own off-the-books secret investigators. And th- that was a brilliant idea, I, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, no one had ever done anything like that before. Uh, and, and it worked. You know, I mean, who could he trust in the police force? You know, no one. You know, because it was so, from the top to bottom rife with corruption everyone was on the take to one degree or another so he had to bring in officers who no one in the forest knew yeah uh that only he knew about and and that took you know a year i mean we also don't don't realize today you know we, we expect from arrest to trial to conviction that that that's going to take uh, many years Mm-hmm. Not back then. Uh, back then, you'd arrest someone. Uh, they would go on trial like three weeks later. The trial would take a week. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So things move faster back then. So, yes. you know, he, he got within a year, a couple dozen uh, major convictions of police officers. So uh, mm-hmm. he cleaned it up pretty quickly. And once that was done, he took on the mob there. Uh, which ran illegal gambling, prostitution. Bootlegging continued because liquor taxes post-prohibition were quite high. Uh, and and he all but destroyed the Cleveland mob. He, he gained quite a few convictions of mob bosses mm-hmm. uh, who were shocked by this because they thought they owned the town. They had owned the town for the past couple decades. Mm-hmm. These were astonishing successes that mm-hmm. you know even without the untouchables qualify him as one of the great lawmen of american history That's and me. he wasn't just a guy who sat behind a desk you know he was out there right. on stakeouts kicking down doors right. doing undercover work and that still isn't all 
you know, he uh, was also an innovator. In many ways, he invented the modern police force. I know. That's, the, that's was what so surprised impressive. me. Yeah. It was so impressive. I, I just was, I was blown away. I was very, very impressed with him. I, that's yeah. what, that's what I found most surprising because, you know, Doug just described very beautifully all these things that he did that I think would seem like impossible tasks. Yeah. But your point about in the meantime, he innovated and brought in all these new methods and techniques that were more up to date and more effective for the police department and the law enforcement. Like that totally shocked me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was a student of the criminologist August Vollmer. Vollmer, yeah. And Vollmer uh, never got to put most of his ideas into practice. He was briefly the police chief in Los Angeles, but got run out of town. Uh, So he spent most of his career as an academic. Uh, So it fell to Ness to put Vollmer's ideas into practice, as well as his own ideas. Uh, you know, he was facing severe budget cuts in Cleveland. This was during the Depression. So he felt like he had to experiment fearlessly. And he ultimately showed Los Angeles and New York and other cities how things should be done. He was absolutely the foremost proponent um, of what was then called scientific policing. You know, he was into ballistics and... Lie detector. Lie detectors. He was a big proponent of lie detectors and, you know, fingerprints, which is becoming uh, um, something that was used more and more. Things like footprints, you know, matching, you know, the, the soles of shoes. All of this was before the FBI lab existed. And there was a great resistance in police circles to to this stuff. They thought it was ridiculous. Just as, you know, the old timers thought that, you know, formalized officer training was ridiculous. Uh, mm-hmm. Ness started a police academy in Cleveland. Yeah. Before that, a new officer, and this was the case in, in most cities at that time, they'd be given a badge and a gun and sent out into the street with, with no training. You know, he, was, he was supposed to learn by doing, by you know, watching his partner, who hopefully was a veteran. So, you know, all of this was um, completely changing the the police department. And in fact, in another way is that he recruited from colleges. Police had always been, like uh, newspaper reporters, a working class profession. Mm-hmm. He went to local colleges and started trying to get get them to students to come and apply to be police officers. Very impressive. He believed that police officers needed to do what is essentially social work. Mm. Yes. Oh, work with yes. the juveniles. Yes. Yeah. He believed in crime prevention. And again, yeah. that was a radical idea in the 1930s. It's pro forma police work today and has been for decades, but not back then. Critics accused him of being soft on crime. Police officers were supposed to arrest people and smack them around so they might think twice about committing more crimes. And that was it. Crime prevention ideas were for utopians, not serious men. You know, he uh, had to overcome a lot of uh, criticism and, and pushback on that. And yeah, as you said, he, he tried to keep juveniles, teenagers, out of the criminal justice system, if at all possible. Yeah. He created a jobs program, which was run by the safety department, working with Cleveland's major industries to give jobs to troubled teens. He worked to lessen the problems of alcoholism and homelessness. Again, areas of concern that traditionally were far outside the purview of a law enforcement official. 
this is uh, remarkable stuff that mm-hmm. people don't realize about Elliot Ness. It really is. I'm glad you brought that up because yeah. there's so many things that we think we just take for granted of, oh, of course this is the way the police system works. And a lot of it sounds like it came from Elliot who got it from, I'm assuming got a lot of it from his Volmer. Do you think, or do you think it just, he just kind of acted from his gut and said, this just makes the most sense. Where do you think he got it? It's a combination. It? Yeah. I mean, certainly Volmer had thought a lot about this stuff and had studied it and and Ness took a lot of that and you know theoretical backing and and put it into practice and then you know you come up with new ideas as you start to put things into practice and realize you know you got to tweak this or try that Mm -hmm. so it was a combination one of the things that you mentioned that I actually really identified with with Elliot was his melancholy where he had periods periods of intense productivity followed by melancholy and feelings of inadequacy. For me, it's almost like a cycle. I feel like I ride that wheel all the time. I'll be intensely productive for days or weeks and then I'll go into the just depths of emotional despair thinking, what am I doing with my life? And, you know, facing the the void that is the future. And then a few days later, I'll be fine. So I don't, I really, I don't really have a question for it other than to say that's what I identified with him the most is seeming to act from his gut. His ideas that he had for the the police, he did it because, well, it just makes sense. And a lot of the things I approach, I do the same way. Well, this just makes sense. I don't really have a, a reason for it. Just why don't we try it this way? And maybe, maybe Elliot just, maybe he was an introverted. He was an, if you do the Myers-Briggs, maybe he was an INFJ or he had these periods of creativity but also insecurity I don't know but anyway like I said it's not really a question it's just a commentary on I that's the part that I really felt like I get it Elliot I don't know why it is this way but I really get it yeah he was introverted and he forced himself to be social and outgoing and I'm sure that contributed to his alcoholism people who are introverted uh, socially awkward they go to a party they they need a few drinks to loosen up and feel comfortable around other people well for me I need the person at the party to have an animal so I can go pet it and I, <laughs> exactly, <laughs> I yes. don't have to interact with the people at the party <laughs> right. a good cat you know let me go play with your yeah. cat <laughs> yeah Elliot had emotional highs and lows throughout his life you know he may have had imposter syndrome oh for sure uh, you know, i he, think for he, sure because i def i definitely have that every day of yeah. my life yes i would give you a solid yes that he has imposter syndrome yeah even when he was locally famous in cleveland right you know, with his name splashed across the front page of headlines almost every day he was humble you know he yeah. didn't think he was special you know here's a story i i love that i tossed it's in the book you know, when Cleveland's mayor, uh, Harold Burton, told Elliot over the phone that he wanted him to take on, you know, the huge job of cleaning up the corrupt police department, wanted him to be safety director, and Elliot accepted, mm-hmm. didn't even ask the salary, just say, yep, I want that job. Mm-hmm. The mayor told him to, to come right over. So Elliot... He was working you know, for the federal government in another downtown Cleveland building. He, he walks over to City Hall. Now, this was the beginning of Burton's administration. And back then, it was expected when you had a new mayor for people to go to the mayor's office and ask for a job. Uh-huh. And this is, you know, the Great Depression. So there's desperation out there. And so mostly, you know, these are people asking for small time jobs, you know, like a toll collector. So Elliot comes into the large outer office 
the mayor's suites, and it's absolutely packed with job seekers. Elliot has just been hired for the most important job in the city after that of the mayor, and the mayor has asked him to come right over. So you you think Elliot would push through this crowd and tell the secretary who he was and go right back to see the mayor. Mm -hmm. Nope. He stood in the back and he waited his turn. After about a half hour or so, when he hadn't shown up, you know, Burton figured Elliot got caught up at his, you know, current job as a federal agent. And so he told an aide, go out and go out and get him. Uh, the aide goes out and he finds him standing there in the back of the outer office, just patiently waiting his turn. Yeah. You know, that's that to me is that's Elliot Ness. Yeah. Do you think we've said he was insecure? He may have had imposter syndrome. He was humble. He was always trying to prove himself. Was part of it trying to prove himself to his dad? You know, do you think there were some underlying issues of wanting approval from male role models? Or I, I don't know. It just it just occurred to me. Yeah, probably. Uh, certainly he wanted Alexander Jamie's approval. He doesn't appear that he was close to his father. He was very close with his mother. He never his father. Dad died, I think, right? His, yeah, his father died, you know, when he was still, you know, on the way up in his, in Elliot's professional career. I think he was still married to uh, his first wife, Edna. Elliot was a straight arrow professionally, you know, like Jamie, never take a bribe, but he wasn't a judge judgmental man. Early on with the Untouchables, uh, when he found out that a couple of his men were taking bribes, he didn't immediately fire them. Mm -hmm. He understood that everyone had weaknesses. He had them himself. You know, he, he wanted results. And, and that's, that was the his guiding light. He needed uh, people who uh, you know were suspect uh, to get those results. He would he would work with them. So you know I don't know. He he didn't he didn't care what people said about him when he believed he was right in what he was doing. Mm. But at the same time, he was insecure and he needed to be bucked up and encouraged. He had so many ironies. He just had so many complexities in him. It, he's he's a fascinating figure. So the official title of your book is Elliot Ness, The Rise and Fall of an American Hero. So we've been talking about the rise. Let's talk about the fall a little bit. He went from stratospheric heights of popularity in 1936 to 19 years later dying in near obscurity, which was one of the most astonishing things to me. In your opinion, Doug, what do you think this says about fame in general or Elliot more specifically? It says that times change fast. Yeah. The stock market crash in, in 1929 up into the world in a snap. Mm -hmm. And then Pearl Harbor in 1941 did the same. Mm -hmm. If Elliot had run for mayor of Cleveland in 1941, as many people encouraged him to do, yeah, he'd have won in a walk, a route. He was that popular. But when he ran just six years later, yeah. everything was different. You yeah. know, you know, his pre-war, pre-World War II heyday as safety director seemed like it was a thousand years ago. Uh, he wasn't the boy wonder anymore. At the same time, his alcoholism was beginning to show. Yeah. Um, and so he just wasn't sharp like he used to be. He, he was very articulate, just such a go-getter, uh, so much energy. That's what he was known for. And uh, I, I think it was probably a shock to many Clevelanders when they saw him out on the uh, campaign trail in 1947, where he was just kind of little bloated, just, you know, a, a step slow, just didn't seem entirely uh, engaged in what was going on around him. You know, that's uh, what any addiction can do to you. It, it had uh, gripped him by then. And, and so, so 
led to a, a sad final decade for him. It did. To me, it was so sad that essentially alcohol is what led to his rise because he was getting rid of it, you know, purging the city of it. But then alcohol also led to his fall because he was intaking it. It just was another one of those ironies of Elliot that alcohol was responsible for both parts of his life, the rise and the fall, to me anyway. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Armchair psychologist. Well, we typically end our show with an armchair psychologist question. And so we would love to bring you into our armchair part, if you don't mind, Doug. You had a quote in your book that said, you know, we didn't have the mass communication and mass transportation that exists nowadays. We didn't have as much schooling either. As a result, people were more unique then, more unusual, more different from each other. Now, people are all more or less alike, company men, security-minded, conformity, that sort of stuff. Because your book really pushed us to think about this idea of heroism and what it takes to really be a hero, we thought we'd put that quote in front of us and consider that idea. Do we think it still applies in our society today? Do we center around conformity and like-mindedness? And if that is the case, then what does it take to be a hero in today's world? You know, who would we, who would you be writing about? Who would be written about a hundred years from now as, as a true hero? Yeah, good question. There was a, a survey or something that came out, I don't know, a year or so back asking teenagers what ideally would be their, what would they do when they, when they grew up? What would mm-hmm. be their profession, be their ideal profession? Mm-hmm. And the winner was social media influencer. Wow. Yeah. Not, you know, not, not president, not astronaut, mm-hmm. not scientists, uh, social media influencer. Yeah. Uh, so our concept of what makes a hero isn't what it used to be. Yeah. Right. Uh, TV started that degradation uh, of what was an accomplishment, and the internet has accelerated that. So you know, we um, we even kind of you know forget that movie stars. Uh, as people to look up to uh, is a relatively new phenomenon. You know, yeah, within uh, the last hundred years, really. Uh, less than that, I would well, yeah. say. Uh, it, it reminds me of one of my favorite movies, my favorite year I've ever seen. Oh that. yes, I'm not an actor; I'm a movie star. Exactly. So there's this <laughs> there's this uh, one scene where Peter O'Toole, as the movie star Alan Swan, mm-hmm. he's drunk and he wants to get into this party to help his friend the writer connect with the writer's girlfriend and so he tries to rappel down the side of a building to swing into you know the the open courtyard you know there and he misses and goes over the railing and these two toffs you know city elite guys are you know having their drinks and one of them looks over the railing and he says the other "Hey, hey i think i think alan swan is beneath us (laughs) <laughs> and his friend says of course he's beneath us he's an actor <laughs> and that was that was how well-to-do accomplished people thought of actors yes uh for years you know yeah. up until really i'd say the 60s when that started to really change and they became actors were, were started to become people you looked up to Mm-hmm. Um, hero status uh, is is very different in today's world than it was in the 20s and 30s and 40s when Elliot Ness was a young man and 
working. Yes. I love your answer because you've made me think about, I, I think it all comes back to how we define a hero, because I think in the past, when we would try to pin down our definition of a hero, it was somebody who would put others above themselves, somebody who would sacrifice to do something good for whether it was a group of people or society in general, but they were, they were about others. Whereas I think you've made me realize a lot of times now the word hero just means famous or celebrity right. or well-known versus these qualities that we might actually admire in a person. Right. Exactly. Uh, You're a hero for accomplishing big things. Uh, That's why when you think of heroes pre-late 20th century, it was always leaders, generals, Mm -hmm. sometimes CEOs, and then not until really middle part of the 20th century you start to see athletes you start to see movie stars and now social influencers <laughs> you know so it's a different world yeah okay well what current projects are you working on now and or what's next for you and how can our listeners follow you or access your work i don't have a book project at the moment mm-hmm. um, i am a senior writer and reporter for the oregonian newspaper here in portland Right now, what I'm working on, last year, I published a a four-part investigative piece about a 1989 murder across the river here in Vancouver, Washington. And the woman who was murdered, Effie Intazari, uh, her estranged husband was quickly convicted, but their daughter, Pune, doesn't believe her father was guilty. Mm. And she has dedicated her life, really the past 30 years, to investigating the case and trying to find the real killer, um, who she thinks really killed her mother. And she's had incredible success. And she's been patient, waiting for advances in in DNA technology and ballistics. Uh, So I I wrote about that. And uh, now it looks like uh, with just a little bit of luck here, that's going to become a multi-part documentary. Fantastic. So, so uh-huh. yeah, so I'm, I'm hoping that comes together and uh, we shall wait and see. But that's been a really fascinating project to work on. I spent a year on and it looks like it might not be over. Wow, that sounds fascinating and, and so worthwhile. I mean, if, if this will all pay off and hopefully, you know, bring some justice to this situation. That will be nice. I think the fingers crossed things uh, might happen here in the next month or so to uh, move this case along even more. Amazing. Thank you so much for talking to us. This has been absolutely fascinating. And it's it's funny because I just realized when we started, in my mind, I had you kind of labeled as, you know, Doug Perry, you know, this very well-known, accomplished journalist and author. And now I am definitely thinking of you as those two things, but also historian, because your historical knowledge is just so impressive. So thank you for taking the time to talk with us. And we just really appreciate it. Thank you very much. I've really enjoyed talking to both of you. I enjoy your podcast and keep it up. Thanks so much. If you love what we do, please rate and review our show, or you can become a supporter by making a donation through buymeacoffee.com slash scandalwaterpod. Whether a single gift or a recurring monthly donation, it would go a long way towards supporting our work and allowing us to keep the tea brewing. At our website, 
www.scandalwaterpodcast.com, you can submit questions or your own story ideas, access our sources and show notes, see the merch we offer for sale, and more. You can join the Scandal Water community through our Scandal Water Podcast Facebook page or follow us on Instagram or TikTok at Scandal Water Podcast. This episode was executive produced by Candy Thomas, that's me, and Ashley Raymer Brown, that's me. It was researched and written by Candy Thomas and edited by Ashley Raymer Brown. A special thank you to Josh Martin, who wrote, composed, and performed the Scandal Water theme and other music. Matt C. Adams, who created the artwork, and Joshua Reith, who designed our website and provides ongoing technical support. As a reminder, this podcast is purely for entertainment purposes. The thoughts and opinions of the host during each episode of Scandal Water are their own and do not reflect the opinions of any future guests, advertisers, or clearly professional psychologists. Thanks for listening.